All right. Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. And um, one of the things that that we talked just briefly about last week was what we were uh, uh, calling deconversion stories. Those people who had followed the Lord for a period of time and, uh, and then are publicly... Proclaiming their denial, they're now they are denying everything that they had once proclaimed. And there are some fairly famous or relatively well-known people who have promoted their so-called deconversion stories. What I want to do today is I want to talk, just open this time of uh, this message with some very interesting conversion stories that I just read this week. And they just stood in such sharp contrast to what we discussed last week um, that I thought I would bring them up. And and the first one, the individual is unnamed for safety reasons. He was a a leading um, member of ISIS, the terrorist group, and he met with a, a particular Christian individual, and his intent when he met with this person was to kill him. Brought a knife for the purpose of killing this missionary. And as they talked, inexplicably to him, he withheld the knife and did not slay the man that he was speaking with. A few weeks or maybe a month or so later, they met again. And in between the first meeting and the second meeting, um, Christ had appeared to this terrorist individual in a dream and told him to listen to what the man had to say. They met again, and at, at that second meeting, this man, once a terrorist, once a hater of God, called upon the name of Christ and was saved. An incredible change. Really an incredible change. Another interesting story that I read this week was the uh, testimony of a man by the name of Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook was a set designer in the fashion world. He ran with an A-list crowd, um, and he would say, quote, I had done everything, met everyone, and traveled everywhere. God was never an option because I was gay. But I'd done it all, and he was at a party in Paris, and he's looking around, and he's saying, is this really it? I'm at the pinnacle of my career. Is this it? Is this all there is? And as he returned home, he went to his favorite coffee shop, and he noticed just a group of students who had open Bibles, and they had a little Bible study going on in the coffee shop. And he got up. And he went over and he began to ask them questions about the Bible. They answered his questions and said, why don't you come to church with us on Sunday? Again, God was never an option to this man. He went to church, heard the gospel right then and there. He called upon the name of the Lord and was saved. Jesus intervened into these men's lives and changed them. They are no longer the same men. This happens every day. I've put out two relatively well-known or pretty dramatic conversion stories. 
But I want you to know that whether you were a terrorist or whatever, if you've been changed by the gospel, it is an incredible change. It is an amazing testimony. It is, in fact, a grand miracle that we rejoice in. And so it is with that as a background that I want to introduce our topic today, our study in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Because where we've been, we, we, we get to a little shift here in, in, our, in the book of Acts because for the past few weeks, maybe the past few months, the Apostle Saul, Saul has been the dominant figure. We, we first talked about how uh, persecution came about because of Saul. And then we saw Saul traveling on the road to Damascus to persecute believers. And he encountered the living, risen Christ. And before he got to Damascus, he became a completely new individual. And so we've been looking at the transformation of Saul. That's been our dominant theme. Today, as we go forward, we're going to move away from Saul. We're going to move away from Saul for a couple of chapters. Uh, He will return, but we now focus back on the person of Peter, who uh, we'll, we'll give attention to. And we're going to look today at two miracles. Two miracles that Christ involves himself in two miracles where Christ um, invades the lives of two individuals and completely changes them, makes them what something that they were not before. So I want to spend a little time looking at that. But before we get there, let me just set the stage. I want to kind of lay a foundation before we actually begin to look at our text. And the the first thing I want to consider is I want us to compare chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Hopefully you're already in Acts chapter 9. And I want you to look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And it ends like this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. I want you to contrast and compare that to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. I want you to compare these two things. In chapter 8, verse 1, there arose a great persecution in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And so the church had peace. I want us to focus on that chapter 9, verse 31, because that peace came from the conversion of Saul. That the chapter 8, verse 1, the persecution rose because of Saul, the Pharisee. He was the perpetrator and the instigator and the initiator and the motivator behind this persecution. And then by Acts chapter 9, verse 31, God has intervened in the life of Saul and now there is great peace in the church. I find it very interesting, we talked a little bit about it last week, that the way that God dealt with Saul. If it were me, I would just get rid of the guy. If it's like, okay, well, we need Saul's our big troublemaker. Let's just off the guy, get rid of him. And all of our problems are solved. And God does not, fortunately, take advice from people like me. Because instead of eliminating Saul, God converts Saul and turns his enemy into his friend and makes him the great megaphone of the Christian faith. Saul has received what he did not deserve. 
Saul is a changed man. He receives what he did not deserve. He goes in with a hard, violent heart, and he comes out with one that, as we looked at a few weeks back, um, writes 1 Corinthians 13, the most sublime chapter of love, probably in all of literature. How does a man who hates and breathes out threats ends up writing, but love is patient and love is kind and love bears all, believes all things, trusts and hopes all things. Love does no injustice. That man was the recipient of a changed heart, a changed mind. He had received mercy when he did not deserve anything other than God's justice. So I want to begin with this look at these two verses that frame the ministry or the the conversion of Saul. I also want to make sure that we understand the bigger picture that's going on here. Because the incredible changes that we're going to see in these two individuals are going to prepare us for the seismic change that occurs in Acts chapter 10. You should probably go ahead and read Acts chapter 10. We're going to be there, I think, for a while. But Acts chapter 10 is also one of those key turning points in church history. A while back, I said that the conversion of Saul may be one of the most important events in world history. Not church history, world history. What happens in Acts chapter 10 is certainly one of those great turning points in church history. It is the conversion of Cornelius, and it's going to launch worldwide change. The the world will be a different place, or will at least be on the trajectory of drastic change because of the conversion of Cornelius and his household. It is one of the principal turning points in church history. So you should probably go ahead and read that. Today, however, we're going to see a kind of the preliminaries of what's going to happen. We're going to see how Peter gets to Cornelius' house. We're going to see God arranging and moving things to get Peter to the place that Peter needs to be to launch this incredible ministry. And we're going to see two lives change. We're going to see um, Aeneas, his life change, and a woman by the name of Dorcas and her life change. But I do want to make one final point before, not final point like we're done, but final point before I start the sermon. This isn't the sermon, by the way. What I want us to be careful to do is I want us to be careful not to reduce the events of Acts chapter 9, 32 through 43 to mere historical facts recorded in a book for us. And while they are historical facts and they are recorded in a book for us, let's not reduce them to that alone. Because the dramatic changes that we're going to see, the healing of Aeneas and the resuscitation of Dorcas are not just great miracles, but they are, these dramatic changes are the result that Jesus Christ is alive and well and reigning from heaven. I want you to get that point, that the dramatic changes are the result that Christ is living, reigning, and continuing to work in the world that he has created. That he is the exalted Lord and he is not unconcerned or uninvolved with the events that go on on this planet. And I also want to encourage you today that the Jesus of yesterday, the Jesus of Aeneas and the Jesus of 
Dorcas is the Jesus of today and the Jesus now and forever. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I want us to take hope that what's going on in this um, account didn't end in the first century. That the same Jesus who is doing these things is the Jesus who is living and reigning and ruling in this world today. And He will continue to rule and reign and live in the world tomorrow. And if we don't see tomorrow, Jesus' ministry on this planet has not ceased. So I hope we can take that with us today. So if you will, let's go ahead and look at our text today. And uh, as I read, follow along with me in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And he found a, a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to meet him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. I want us to begin by looking at this individual by the name of Aeneas. And before we get there, we see that Peter was ministering among them all. And of course, my first question is, who is that? He went here and there among them all. And it seems like when we, we look at the previous verse, that it's most likely he's visiting these various churches outside of Jerusalem, um, which is really interesting. It indicates that there are churches now outside of Jerusalem. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is not remaining in one place. It's, it's growing. It's, it's going to different areas. And, uh, and so there are different churches that are being planted. And in fact, sorry, this thing kind of faded out on us. But right here is um, um, we have Jerusalem right here. Um, we have seen up in Damascus. That's kind of where that's where Paul was converted. So the gospel has been up there. We've seen Gaza and Ashdod and uh, this is where uh, Philip met the, the Ethiopian. And of course, down here off the screen, um, maybe down here, down on the wood part, we, we have that, Ethio that area of Ethiopia where the Ethiopian eunuch went back and we know that he established the gospel down there. So we can see that the gospel has left Jerusalem and it has spread all the way up here to Damascus, over here into, onto the coast. Saul has gone to Tarsus. So it's spreading up in here pretty soon. It's going to go all around into this area and over, over in here. And so the gospel 
Peter has now left Jerusalem and he's basically, it looks like he's kind of doing a ministry tour. He's checking up on the churches and seeing about them. The church has spread from sub-Sahara Africa all the way to Damascus. Soon it's going to go into uh, Turkey and into Western Europe. And as Peter is doing this, he comes to this town called Lydda. And there is a community of saints in this, little, in this, in this town. We might ask ourselves, I wonder how this church originated. And people would probably say, well, probably Philip. Good possibility. Remember, Philip was down in this region. Um, quite possibly Philip. Um, brought the gospel here. But here's the other thing. Remember how the gospel spread. The gospel spread mostly just through people going about their daily business. It was through craftsmen and tradesmen and travel and people um, were traveling around and they spread the gospel. And so the gospel spread, of course, through Peter and Paul and all of these very famous people. But remember, the gospel really spread primarily just through regular folks. Just through folks going about and doing business. As they traveled around, they shared the gospel. And so there is this church that is in this town. And I do want to note how, now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down to the saints who lived at Leda. Now, notice this, he came to the saints. This is a term that Luke does not use very often. He's used it one other time just previously in chapter 9 to refer to believers. It's not a term Luke uses often, so I think we should pay attention. Why is Luke using this term saints here? And so to begin, perhaps we should ask ourselves, what is a saint? What is a saint? We have this idea that a saint is somebody who is like a extra special Christian, a Christian who is above all Christians, a Christian who is like the super Christian. Within the Catholic Church, it's one who has done miracles and somebody who is especially good. That's not the definition of the, in the Bible of a saint. A saint in the Bible, is simply, the word saint simply means a holy one. Um, one who is set apart. Holy has this idea of being set apart, being distinct. Being, in this case, it would be one who is set apart for God's purposes. This is why Paul can write to the saints at Corinth or the saints at Ephesus or the saints at some other church. Perhaps if Saul, if Paul was still alive today and he wrote a letter to this church, it might begin with to the saints at the church on Randall Place. Do you think about that? That we are, you're going, well, I don't know if I'm too saintly. Paul would consider us saints. I mean, if he considered the Corinthian saints, then certainly we're at least on par with that. But this causes me to reflect a little bit further then. If that's what a saint is, my next question is, how does one become a saint? Because the very idea of calling somebody a saint, to me, indicates change. Something happened. Something, they went from one designation to the second designation. They became, they were something and now they're a saint. What happened? What changed? How did they get this designation saint? Because that very word indicates change. If I were to call you a saint, it is 
indicating by definition that something in your life has changed. And it is a God-wrought change because only God makes saints. So the question then is, how does one become a saint? Because you're not born a saint. I was not born St. John. So how does one become a holy one? How does one become an individual who is set apart for God's purposes? Because we're not born into that condition. In fact, just the opposite. Scripture is very clear as to the nature, uh, our, the nature into which we are born. The Bible says that we are born as, by nature, children of wrath. That's a frightening thought. That we are destined for destruction. That we are children of disobedience. That we are estranged from God. That is who we are by nature. And now Paul is saying, you are saints. You are no longer estranged from God, enemy of God, children of disobedience, by nature, children of wrath. That's not who you are. Something has changed. And now you are a holy one, set apart by God, for God. You are no longer estranged from God. Rather, you're a child of God. Rather, you are a friend of God. Rather, you have been reconciled to God. Rather, now you are destined for eternal life. What happened? The word saint designates, screams, something happened to these people. That they were enemies of God and now they're friends of God. That they were children of wrath and now they are adopted heirs of God. What happened? What happened was about four years earlier, Jesus Christ lived, died on a cross, and rose again from the dead. That the power and effect of Christ's work on Calvary was such that sinners could be forgiven of their sins. Their sins could be atoned. God's wrath. Remember, you are by nature children of wrath. And we were talking about this this morning in our, in our Bible study downstairs. God continues to pour out his wrath on sin. Make no mistake. God does not, has not stopped pouring out his wrath on sin. Our issue is Upon who will receive the wrath of God. If you reject Christ forever, God's wrath will be poured out on you. If you call upon the name of the Lord, he has poured out his wrath on his own son, Jesus Christ. These were people. They were saints. They had received God's forgiveness. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ. Jesus stood in their place. The wrath of God diverted from them and poured out upon the sinless son of God. And he was buried and he rose again from the dead. He has now risen to life and they now have life in that same Christ who died in their place. He died in their place and he rose as the first fruits of those who would rise from the dead. And I want you to understand something. The power and effect of the work of Calvary has not waned. It is still changing men and women from children of wrath unto heirs of God Almighty. That power has not waned. The work of Calvary does not ebb as the years and centuries and millennium go by. It was not powerful in the first century. And then over time, it starts to wane. It is not ebbed. It is not flowed. It is just as potent today 
as it was on the third day after Christ rose again from the dead. It continues. One of the great, I'll be a little grammar geek here, but one of the great, great passages of text is when Jesus um, said, it is finished. I want you to understand that the construction of that word is such that it is finished and its effects continue. They do not, it is finished, did not stop sometime at the end of the first century or second century or third century or 20th century. That it is finished, it is finished. His work is complete and it is sufficient for you and for me and for your friends and for your neighbors and all who call upon the name of the Lord. It is sufficient for an ISIS terrorist. And it is sufficient for you who may be a good person who... who never terrorized anybody, but is still in need of having your nature changed. The efficacy of Christ's work remains as potent today as it did then because Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. His death continues to cover sin and His resurrection continues to guarantee life. He is still changing sinners into saints. This is what He does. And so Peter is in this area and he's going here and there among them all and he came down to the saints in this particular town and he meets and he, is, he comes to, a, to this individual by the name of Aeneas who has been bedridden for um, eight years and I love what he says to this guy notice this <laughs> and Peter said to him Aeneas Jesus Christ heals you Jesus Christ heals you, now make your bed. And I don't know, maybe I'm the only guy who... Okay, you're healed, now make your bed. (laughs) Jesus Christ heals you, now go do the dishes. I mean, am I the only one who sees that? Maybe, I probably am. Now you can't unsee it, sorry. (laughs) Go make a sit. I'm not sure if there's any theological or important... it, It just stood out to me. I didn't know what to do with it, so Jesus Christ heals you. But I love the words, Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't command. He's stating an already verified fact. It's as though all he is is the messenger. I don't do anything here. I'm just showing up. Hey, didn't you know Aeneas? Jesus Christ heals you. Done. So Aeneas, oh, okay, I've heard the message. And he gets up. Peter already knows what Jesus has done. He simply is the the delivery guy. He's just delivering the message. Peter is the mediator of the healing. He is not the healer. Jesus heals you. The living Christ, notice this, this is the living Christ. Jesus is not dead and buried in a tomb. He is living and reigning, and so therefore he has the power, the potency, and the ability to do what nobody else can do, and that is heal a man who's bedridden for eight years. The living Christ changes the life of Aeneas, and notice what happens next. And then many turn to the Lord. Because of this miracle, many turn to Christ. I'm going to come back to that, so we're going to just leave that there. 
The living Christ changes the life of Aeneas. People see it and many come to know Christ. Then we move on to another place because there is in this particular town of Joppa uh, a woman by the name of Tabitha, which means, uh, which is translated Dorcas. I guess um, Luke sees that people may not have understood Aramaic. So he translates the word for us, Dorcas. And um, she dies. And it's interesting that they then send two men to go get Peter. What's amazing is that Peter goes with them. I mean, if somebody comes and says, well, you know what? We've got this lady. She's really well known in our area. She, man, we love her so much. She's such a great woman. And she died a couple days ago. It's about a 10-mile journey um, between these two towns. And she's already dead. I was like, well, what can I do? She's dead. Bury her. Peter gets up and goes. amazing thing. Okay, well, I think I can, I got, I got something to contribute to this situation. So he gets up and he goes. And he comes to the house of Dorcas. And Dorcas is a woman who is um, unlike Aeneas. Aeneas we don't know anything about. Know nothing about him. Just some guy who was bedridden for eight years. But we get a really big uh, a lot of detail about this woman, Dorcas. That she is a woman who is Held in high regard, she is known for her great works of charity. And uh, by the way, that would be a great thing that we would be known by. Instead of Christians as hypocrites or whatever, Christians who are known for their great acts of charity. It's a noble mark for somebody who follows Christ. And she goes and... She's laid in an upper room, and so Peter goes to this upper room. He gets rid. He says, "Everybody else, leave. It's just going to be. I'm, I'm just going to be here with this individual." And of course, there's a lot of parallels here. One of the parallels we read earlier, didn't we, in the with Elijah, with the with the the woman, the widow's son. And then, of course, it reminds us of Jesus when he went into that upper room and 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 healed an individual. Basically, um, he was mocked. He said, "Well, boy, he's not dead. He's just sleeping." And they mocked him to shame. And sure enough, Jesus raises him from the dead. And so we see a lot of parallels. It looks like Peter learned from reading God's word and from watching Jesus how to work in this situation. And he speaks to her, Tabitha, rise. And she does. Once again, the living Christ changes Dorcas. Dorcas was dead, but now she's alive. That's quite a change. Christ changes that whole environment for that woman. Jesus steps into the life of Dorcas and changes her. And then notice what happens. The gospel expands. See that? People come to know Christ. Many people believe. The change in Dorcas initiates a broader change as many call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. Jesus is turning things around so that people would turn to him. He turns Dorcas's life around so that people would turn to Christ. And he turn, changes the life of Aeneas so that people would come and follow him. So let's talk for just a moment about the place of miracles. Because one of the things we see here very clearly is that it is because of the miracles that people came to know Christ. People follow the Lord because they saw these miracles. I don't want to discount that. 
I don't believe for a moment that miracles are the means of regeneration. People are not born again because they witness a miracle. People are born again because they hear the gospel. That's clear in Scripture. But I don't think we can discount the place of miracles, in, certainly in Scripture and even today. I come from a tradition that I think placed a, a way too heavy emphasis on miracles. It was almost like if miracles aren't being done um, in you and among you, then whatever you're doing is not legitimate. That was the tradition I came from. All right. Unless there's miracles, then what you're doing really isn't legitimate. It, it, it falls short of the biblical standard. And I will say that there are a lot of conversion stories in, in the book of Acts. And many of them um, are accompanied by miracles. But not all of them. Many of them are not. But there is a place for miracles. And I don't want to go to the other extreme as saying, well, you know what? That's some distant Old, old and New Testament thing, first century. Miracles have ceased. I don't believe that for a moment either. I just find no evidence in Scripture for it. So what is the place of miracles? I think we need to avoid um, these extremes that miracles should be normal. Anyone who tells you miracles should be normal, the, the whole word miracle by, by definition means that it's rare, right? I mean, a miracle by definition is rare. But I also don't want to be in the place of saying, ah, you know what, that, that couldn't have happened. No miracles today. We shouldn't expect a miracle in our church services or in our people. I'll comment in just a second on that. So what is the place of miracles? First of all, let me establish this. Christianity is a supernatural religion. It is a supernatural religion. Folks, when we pray, we're praying for miracles, aren't we? Have you ever prayed for somebody to be healed? Well, we're praying for a miracle. Do you actually believe that can happen? I think so. Otherwise, why even bother praying? Let's stop, stop all that nonsense and that facade. Stop praying for miracles. If miracles don't happen, I'm going to keep praying for miracles. I believe God does miracles. Notice, I believe God does miracles. You ever pray for somebody's salvation? That in itself is probably the greatest miracle ever. I wonder who is praying for that ISIS terrorist. I wonder who is praying for that gay man who, who had everything. I wonder who is praying for them. Oh, by the way, it was his, sis, one of his, his sister-in-law. Uh, he, in this interview, he talks about how his sister-in-law, that they didn't talk because she was a Christian and they, he didn't think they had anything to communicate about. They have a good relationship now. She was praying for this man. She was praying. She was probably as shocked as anybody. Really? That's amazing and rejoiced. When we pray, we pray for miracles. Why? Because Christianity is a supernatural religion. It is founded on the living, resurrected, reigning Christ. Resurrection is a miracle. If there are no miracles, then Christ didn't get raised from the dead. But there are miracles and Christ is raised from the dead. But, and... So when we pray, we're praying for miracles. And miracles are no doubt means by which God draws people to Christ. Miracles point to Christ. And I think that's the key thing. Miracles point to Christ. They are living, that Christ is living, that he is active, that he has not resigned himself to the far reaches of heaven. 
And maybe one day we'll see him and hopefully he'll accept us. It's like, no, Christ is living right now. He's dwelling in his people by his spirit. And he's, he's bringing about his, his, his work and he's doing his, his, uh, his, his ministry has now continued. The very ministry that Christ began that ends at the end of the gospel is picked up in the book of Acts. And Christ continues his ministry, only now he's doing it through his his servants, his people. And that gets passed along generation after generation. People come to know Christ and they are filled with the Spirit and they continue the work of Christ. And they bring people to Christ who are filled with the Spirit and they continue the work of Christ. Miracles point to Christ. They tell us that He's alive. They tell us that He is not um, distant from our pains and our hurts and our trials and our difficulties. They tell us that he is active and working in that which he has made. Christ changes things. I want to talk about one more change and then I'll, I'll work on concluding this message. Did you notice the change in Peter? And not just here in the book of Acts. The first thing we see is Peter went from a fisher of fisherman to a fisher of men. He went from cleaning his nets to following Christ. In fact, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, I'll paraphrase it briefly. Peter says, how can you use a guy like me? He sees this miracle of Christ, this, this boatload of fish, literally a boatload of fish. And he says to Jesus, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Who am I that the Lord of glory would have anything to do with a guy like me? And that one becomes the one who makes the great insight. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Holy Spirit revealed to Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. You went from a guy who says, I'm a sinner, depart from me, to you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He went from this self-confident individual, I will never deny you, to denying Jesus three times and then being the first one to see the empty tomb and to be restored by Christ and become really the apostle, the chief apostle. In the New Testament, he becomes a man filled with the Holy Spirit, a man who is a bold witness saying, I'm, I'm going to share the gospel no matter what. Arrest me, put me in jail, mock me, beat me. What do I care? Here's the gospel. That Peter. The Peter who was afraid of a little servant girl by a fire at night prior to Jesus' trial. That fearful Peter is the one who boldly proclaimed the gospel in the face of mockings and persecutions and beatings. That Peter. Jesus totally transformed this man. That Peter, the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who communicates a message, Jesus heals you, Aeneas, make your bed, and says, Tabitha, rise, and she does becomes the mediator of Jesus' healing work. 
This is an amazing change. And what we're looking at here are some really, really big things, but they're brought to our attention so that we understand that Christ continues to change our circumstances. He continues to change our lives. He continues to change our thinking. He continues to change our status before him. If you're not a believer and you you can say, well, you know, I, I don't know if Christ could ever change my life. I'm here to tell you that Christ changes lives and he can change yours. He will change us and He will change our situation. He will change sinners into saints. That's what He does. And He's really good at it. And He can change inconsistent and frail followers into bold witnesses of Christ. You may say, I'm fearful to share the Gospel. I'm fearful of what people might think. I'm fearful of my job. Christ can change. So, I'm not going to close our, our message. I'm, I'm kind of done with the sermon right now, but here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to pray. If Christ changes things, then let's pray. Um, so I guess a couple of different things. Um, Bible says if there is any sick among you, call for the elders of the church and the prayer of faith. Uh, anoint them with oil and the prayer of faith will will restore them. So if you're seeking that God would heal you, um, I can't heal anybody, but I can follow what Scripture says and we can pray for you. So I'd like, if you want, come down and come forward and we'll pray with you. Um, If you want to receive salvation, if you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, um, that change is right now on the horizon. It, it can be done right now. You can go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. Think about that right right now, being an enemy of God by, by calling upon the name of the Lord. So, are there, Or any other prayers. If you have somebody that you want to pray for, somebody who needs salvation. So I'm going to ask you to come forward. And I, I know we don't do that a whole lot at this church, but um, I'll give you opportunity if... That's something you want prayer. If you want prayer this morning, let's pray for you. Um, If nobody comes forward, we'll sing our song and call it a day. But let's pray. Pray for you, Judy. Her love for you and just what a great servant, Lord, ready to do whatever it takes, Lord God. She loves her family so much. And she's been praying for them, witnessing to them, Lord God, demonstrating, not only sharing with her, her, her lips and her voice, Lord God, but backing it up, Lord God. Her life is one that is 
um, reflects your beauty, Lord. I pray um, that you would change the life of these family members, Lord God, and that salvation would come to their household, Lord, and that you would you would do a great and, and miraculous thing. And Lord, I pray that as we gather here in the near future, that that Judy would step up and talk about how how you turned people around and brought salvation and brought grace, Lord God. We pray that you continue to give her strength. Lord, she says she's growing weary, Lord God. And so we just ask that you would give her strength and the ability, Lord God, to do what she just wants. It's easy to be fatigued. It's easy to grow weary. It's easy to lose hope. I pray that you'd give her hope. Pray, Father God, that you'd give her strength, Lord God. So continue to bless and keep her, Lord God. Um, lift up those hands that hang down and strengthen feeble knees, Lord God. Bring aside people, bring along people, Lord God, who will hold up her hands, Lord God, as she battles and wars for the souls of her family, Lord God. And I pray that you would give her a second wind and a third wind, Lord God, and let her continue. And we pray for their salvation, Lord changed hearts. Only you can change a heart. We can't do anything, Lord. We can pray and we pray for a miracle. Lord, pray for your changing, doing what we cannot do. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.